0: Every time we visit my family living in Georgia, something magical happens. It happens at my mom's house uh, in the kitchen, and here's what happens. Natalie goes into the kitchen, and she learns to make some of my mom's recipes. Now, Natalie is from uh, Kentucky. She did not consider that the South. My family (laughs) is from the deep South. And accordingly, she had never eaten grits. Now, I know that a lot of you have never eaten grits. She didn't have a lot of sweet tea. The, the sweet tea she grew up with is not like the sweet tea I grew up with. And so she's learning every time we go to the South for my mom. So, for example, she's learned to make my mom sweet tea. Southern sweet tea, if you've never had it, you know it's right when you put your spoon in the sweet tea and the spoon doesn't lean toward one side or the other of the cup. That's when you know that you got just the right amount of sugar. My mom makes this stuff called check's Mix. It's not much different than Trail Mix. It's a concoction of Crispix Mix, various nuts, pretzels, and some secret magical sauce. Uh, that requires because I don't like peanuts and all those nuts you put in it, but if you don't put the nuts in there, it just doesn't get right. So she's learned to make that. My mom makes the most unbelievable chocolate and lemon pie that you've ever had. Natalie's learned to make those and to make the meringue where it kind of fluffs up and doesn't go away. And then my mom makes this meal called, we call it steak and gravy or steak in gravy. If you've never had southern gravy, it's basically edible rubber cement. Um, so if you can think <laughs> about what that does to your insides. Uh, and the steak is like the toughest form of meat that you can imagine. It's so tough. To, I remember my grandpa used to have this metal hammer. And when we would have steak and gravy, my granddad would come to the kitchen and just beat the steak for 30 minutes like trying to make it edible and so you you beat them the steak and then you put it in the gravy and it makes it chewable and after you eat this meal with mashed potatoes and more gravy uh, and then biscuits and more gravy you're done like you're down for the count the edible rubber cement has done its work on your insides and you sleep for the rest of the afternoon and Natalie has, has learned to make this one My wife is already an excellent cook, uh, but she's mastering these meals from my childhood that are new to her under the excellent coaching and cheerleading of my mom after almost 15 years of us being married and watching my mom cook these meals. And my mom, who learned these meals from her mom, who probably learned these meals from her mom, all the people in my family died of heart attacks at like 45 years old. I can promise you, like, not really. But like, I mean, just cholesterol is part of your DNA living under this type of diet. Uh, There's this, my mom who never had daughters gets the delight of passing along what she has known uh, to my wife and then getting to watch her grandboys boys uh, eating that stuff. Change in life is much easier and much quicker and much more delightful when we have models, coaches, cheerleaders, and champions. What my wife has learned in the kitchen from my mom about certain Southern meals, discipleship happens really well that same process. When we're learning from someone, having watched what they've done, uh, having people who cheer for us and champion us and want to see us get the thing that they're trying uh, to teach us. So whether it's someone teaching us to cook or having a trainer who's going to help you get stronger or help you lose weight or learning to play an instrument or some other craft, we thrive in relational environments. We were made for these relational learning environments. In fact, If you'll go to that first line for me, if you don't care, that'd be awesome. God intends for us to grow in our faith this way as well. Understanding and learning to read the Bible. When we learn to read the Bible this way, when we learn to pray this way, when we learn to talk about our faith in this way, processing our past, preparing for our future, uh, when we learn about dating or marriage or parenting or doing finances in a way that honors God, all of these best occur when we have models, coaches, cheerleaders, and champions. Life on life discipleship is God's best for our spiritual growth. All the good stuff of following Jesus, I learned from somebody else. I learned how to read the Bible from Denny Brinkman and Chuck Shaheen. I learned how to pray from godly women who, when they would talk to God, it was, I I can think of one in particular, Debbie Shelton, who prayed with an intimacy and an authority that I had never seen up until that point in my life. I learned how to Pray with my children from other people. I've learned how to disciple my kids in a way that fits for our family from the way that my single mom discipled me. I learned to share my faith from being around other men who were bold but not aggressive with what they believed. They were respectful Uh, And yet they were obedient to the call of the gospel on their life because life on life, one life and another life, one teaching, one watching, one teaching, one coaching, one teaching, one releasing is the best way that God has designed for our spiritual growth. Certainly discipleship is much more than just hearing and digesting sermons week after week. Like Natalie mastering those meals, we begin to master what the Bible calls the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible reading and scripture memorization and study and fasting and all these things. We begin to master these things by the grace of God under the leadership of others. This pattern was God's best in Titus, is still today, and a thousand years from now, this is still going to be true. This principle will still be true in a thousand years. That life-on-life discipleship is God's best way for us to grow. So, in Titus, there went a um, piece of paper that doesn't matter. In Titus, we're going to start in chapter 2, and we're going to look at 10 verses today if we can. Here we go. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness or perseverance. Dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So let me give you just a a bit of background, particularly if you are not from Charlestown and have not been part of our series on Titus. Titus is written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote about half of the New Testament. And he's written this this letter to Titus, who's one of his protégés, with the instruction in Titus 1-5 to put elders or pastors or overseers in essentially every zip code on the island of Crete. You've got Christians gathered into these pre-churches, these sort of like home groups, but they don't have godly, qualified pastors. And so they're meeting, and and Titus is charged with establishing healthy, qualified pastors and leaders in every zip code. uh, In an island that's known for, it's people historically being three things. One, liars. Two, they're known for being evil beasts. And three, historically, they're known for being lazy gluttons. And so this isn't like, These aren't like uh, the most self-disciplined, robust, strong people you've ever thought of. These are morally loose uh, people historically. And so chapter one was all about standards for pastors with Paul saying, these are the character, conduct, and convictions every pastor ought to have and live out or they aren't qualified pastors. And so, if you uh, are, if your church, if you're with the Florida group and your church all of a sudden doesn't have a pastor, and the people in your church, the elders in the church, go to find a new pastor, chapter one of Titus, along with 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 5, would be the parts of a New Testament that would tell you the traits that are the musts for a godly leader. And as pastor of this church, if this is your church, if there ever comes a day where I'm not living out the traits listed in Titus 1, uh, beginning in verse 6, we need to very humbly have a conversation together about my future as the pastor of this church, because this is the standard that God calls his leaders to live by, because the culture is so different than the church. And so in two one, Paul started by saying, but as for you, as for you, now remember in the Bible, the chapters and the verses didn't come along till much later, So all of this, but as for you, is in response to Paul saying, but there's people on Crete, Titus, who don't love God and who are confusing people and upsetting families. But as for you, Titus, you teach what's good. So he's going to give instructions. He's going to say, Titus, this is what you teach. Then teach the old men, the old women, the young men, the young women, and then people who are slaves or employees. And so I'm going to try to go through this as well as we can, but I don't want to leave anything out. First thing he says is, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound is in health. Healthy teach. Healthy, Titus teach. Healthy biblical truth. Things that are going to lead to wellness and wholeness. Titus was to teach the whole church. And he was to teach them to have a faith that was solid and sound that you could build on. There's a quote by a guy named J.J. Van Oosterzee, which is a great name. And he says, no condition and no period of life is to remain unaffected by the sanctifying influence of the gospel. Churches in Crete didn't just need qualified godly pastors, but they also needed a pipeline of godly people living for Jesus at all stages of life. Here's why. Our mentor in ministry is a guy named Chris Adams. Every most of what I know about pastoring, I learned from this guy Chris Adams. And Chris told me one time in 2004, he said, "JD, if you're a pastor, start a church so that if you get run over by a truck tomorrow, the church never misses a beat." And chapter 2 is Titus Uh, being charged to Titus don't just watch after yourself but raise up leaders and raise up people in the church so that if the pastor gets run over by a camel or donkey or whatever is contextual the church doesn't miss a beat and so he was to teach them sound doctrine that they could build the life and build the church upon and so he starts with older men and he says in verse two uh, go reach out to the older men now this may be older men by age I was figuring out the other day, I am uh, in our church, I am in the middle to the younger end of the men who attend our church, which has not historically happened to me. I love that. Like, I, I, I love that there are men my age and older who are part of our church. It's exciting. Maybe this is talking about men who are old, who have gray hair and some life experience. I think it may also be talking about men who've walked with Jesus for a while and have learned how to walk with Jesus Uh, It's probably a little bit of both, but the older men were taught to be a few things. One, uh, and if you'll go to that second slide for me, the first thing they were taught was to be sober-minded, level-headed, wise, careful, clear, decisive. If you qualify as an older man, this is what you are aiming at today. Uh, This isn't uh, about drunkenness when he says be sober-minded. It's not just about drunkenness. Primarily, but it doesn't exclude drunkenness. If you're an older man of a church and you show up lit on Sunday like we have a problem, uh, that's probably not God's best for Christchurch Charlestown. Uh, it's more this. It's more finding men, teaching the men in the church, men, to be able to say with their mouth and their lives, all that matters is pleasing God. That's what it means to be sober-minded. All that matters is pleasing God. That's the only thing. That's the only thing. Everything else comes under the umbrella of pleasing God. That's what it means to be sober-minded. All that matters is pleasing God. Second, he says, encourage them to be dignified, worthy of respect, noble but not prudish, noble but not a stick in the mud. Three, he tells them be self-controlled. Now self-control is the one trait that is listed for all four groups of people, older men, younger men, Uh, Older women, younger women. It's the one trait listed by all of them. Because on Crete, where people are historically liars, gluttons, and beasts, being self-controlled would be a countercultural trait that would bring glory to God. And so it's having your passions under control, not being mastered by your passions. Uh, One commentary says, because Paul directed that self-controlled, sensible behavior be evident in every believer... He definitely indicated that it is needed and attainable by all Christians. See, God's not just saying, Mark, I need you to be self-controlled. God is saying, Mark, I want you and need you to be self-controlled for the glory of God. And you can be self-controlled as you align your life with the idea that all that matters is me. God's not calling us to do something that's needed and not making it where we can actually do it. So I've watched men that I've pastored give up things and struggles and sins and habits that they never thought that they could give up. Because the things that God has asked us to do in being self-controlled, he empowers us to do when we surrender our rights to be in control. Uh, So we can't change ourselves and we can't control ourselves but by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, we can be changed and we can practice self, self-control. And the last trait he says is older men need to be sound in faith, in love. And that word for love is the, uh, the commitment to lay down your life for others. The older men were to be willing, they were to be sound in the desire to lay down their life for others and in steadfastness. Soundness comes from being rooted In a daily walk with God and reorienting our lives around the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done through the cross, through the empty tomb, taking sinners and making them saints. A mature, godly man stays the course. A mature, godly man stays the course. A mature, godly man does not tap out. A mature godly man does not drop out. A mature godly man does not quit early. A mature godly man does not compromise. A mature godly man does not water down. As 2 Timothy 4.7 says, uh, he fights the good fight of faith. And it is a fight. It is a fight, but that's what a godly man does. If you aspire to be an older, mature, godly man, and this is your church, understand that that's what you're aiming at, soundness and faith and love and in perseverance and steadfastness. You're not tapping out. You're going to fight the good fight, even when it's not convenient or comfortable or easy. Older women... Again, this may be about age. It also may may be about stage of life or stage of faith. Older women were taught by Titus to be five things. One, he said, be reverent in behavior, older women. uh, That word means temple fitting. My grandma uh, and grandpa encouraged me that there are some things we didn't do in church. I remember one time I wore soccer shorts to church on a Sunday night you would have thought that I walked in and like spit on the cross. My southern grandma who made steak and gravy and sweet tea, I mean, she, she was appalled. Like, I mean, I literally think she made me sit on the other side of the church building. She thought that wearing soccer shorts was not uh, befitting how we showed up in God's house. And uh, I don't know that the building is God's house, but I do think there are some things that we wouldn't walk in here and do and be. And so when the Bible calls, when when Titus was to call older women to be reverent in behavior, he was saying, live your life, older women, mature women of the faith, in such a way that you would live it right here in front of everybody that you're worshiping with. That's what it means to be reverent in behavior. He says, don't be a slanderer. Slanderer, that word in the language it was written in is the word uh, that we, where we also get the word devil. In other words, he says, women, older women, mature women in the faith, don't be devil talkers. don't be slanderers. Here are some nicknames that Satan gets in the Bible. He's accused of being a liar. So older women are not to be liars. You be honest. Older He's uh, the accuser. So older women are not to be a, a mature godly woman is not an accuser. Uh, he's called a doubt spreader or a questioner. Older women are to live a life of faith that encourages faith, not doubt. Uh, to be a slanderer is to talk like the devil. Older godly women are to be those who are measured and who speak the truth in love. Not addicted to much wine. It doesn't say that a godly woman doesn't drink any wine. I know some of you women, I know you like a good glass of wine, and praise God, I think that's fantastic. Uh, But we don't want the godly women getting hammered. uh, That's not for the glory of God. Like, God gave us wine and God gave us a lot of things for our enjoyment. Because when we enjoy life, he takes pleasure in our joy. But a godly woman is not to be getting hammered. That's not befitting of a woman who is godly. And so a godly woman controls her words and appetites and doesn't live a life that's marked by addiction. The fourth trait, he says, teach what is good. They are to teach, older women are to teach by role modeling, by Bible teaching and application to life, by discipling one-on-one and giving insight and wisdom and encouragement. Annie, you're part of a Bible study every week with a bunch of women, right? I love that. I would assume in that Bible study that you are not the oldest one there. So you're one of the youngest ones there. I love that. It's a church in their community up in Andover that's having this Bible study. And there's older women who are passing along the faith to younger women and younger moms. That is such a biblical, healthy model. Those women are obeying Scripture and doing that. And so a lot of uh, our younger women here, because our church is mostly younger women, might say, well, that's not me right now. I don't have margin to do that. I haven't walked with Jesus long enough. I get it. I get it. That's what we're aspiring to. That's what you're aspiring to, and that's what Titus was to teach. Teach what is good and then train the younger women. They teach godly beliefs, doctrine, theology, and godly behaviors by encouraging and even warning. Training is not always easy. I hate working out with a trainer. The trainer always makes you do one to two to five reps more than you want to do, it's miserable. I want to quit at what is comfortable for me. The trainer doesn't allow me to do that. A mature godly woman trains younger women to push harder in faith than they think that they're capable of. That's what it means to be a godly woman and train the younger women. There are two people that that we're close with, David and Gail Butler, who come and worship here occasionally. David's the head of the network we're part of. I don't know how old David is. I think he's in his 60s. He and his wife are incredible examples of this idea of older men and older women discipling and helping the younger ones. Uh, it's not uncommon for us to get a text from David and Gail or for them to say, how can we be praying for you or just for them to make an investment in our life? They are a model of that uh, that we want to aspire to. Uh, so uh, a couple of things on that. We ne- the biggest one is this. We need to be praying if you are a regular prayer person for this church, we need to pray. God, send us some older godly men and older godly women. Uh, it will help our church grow stronger and deeper. Now, younger women. Paul transitions in verses four and five to younger women. And he said, and this would include uh, newlyweds, young moms, young uh, married women, new believers in our context. Younger women were to be taught by the older women, not Titus. He says, uh, in verse 4. And so the older women train the younger women to love their husbands and children. And he goes on, he lists these three. You don't want the pastor teaching all the young women how to be godly women. That doesn't work well. The husbands don't tend to like the single young pastor teaching all the women how to be godly like women by themselves, especially like, hey, uh, you want to go get coffee? Like, My wife is not a fan. She's not wanting me to be teaching young women how to be godly. She would say, as someone who's walked with Jesus for over 20 20 years, it's my job to disciple younger women in the faith. And so he calls uh, Titus to train the older women, to train the younger women in how to become godly and he gives a few traits here one he says teach them to love their husbands teach them to love their husbands older women were to teach the younger women less about falling in love and more about learning to love less about falling in love and more about uh, learning to love less they were to learn less about how to stay smitten in love and more about how to learn the discipline of love um, second thing, they were to love their, learn to love their children. Older women taught younger women about love for kids that fostered growth and education, emotions, relationships with other kids, and provision of good things. But all of these are second to spiritual growth. If Nat and I teach Noah and Owen... How to be great athletes and scholars and the most popular kids and the best dressed and the most charming and the most successful at the expense of godliness. We have failed them as their parents. And the same is true for you. If you have these well-rounded, beautiful children who get into Harvard and on athletic scholarships and academic scholarships and acting and musical scholarships and everybody loves them and they're most popular and most likely to succeed because you had them in so many extracurriculars and they know nothing of the gospel and nothing of Jesus and have total disregard for the faith, then you have failed in your calling as a parent. We are to pass along The faith to them well, loving our children well, is acknowledging that life has utmost concerns and lesser concerns, and then prioritizing their spiritual health above lesser concerns. Second, they were to be self controlled, not mastered by every whim, emotion, or idea, but controlling the self under the control of the Holy Spirit. Third, the younger women were to be pure. Sexual purity is implied here, um, which is why the older women, not Titus, ought to be teaching the younger women. Fourth, they were were encouraged to be working at home. Now, I know this is a little controversial in our culture, but let me say uh, this doesn't mean that it's a sin for a woman to work. It doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is there is dignity in staying home and being with your children and managing the home. We live in a culture that has shifted to this place where it's almost like a a woman has to apologize if she's a stay-at-home mom. And the scripture says there's dignity in that. Now, I understand that there are homes where both uh, the husband and the wife work. I understand there are homes where the wife works and the husband stays home. That's fine. That's the culture we live in, and that's okay. But what we understand is if a wife stays home and manages the house... That is an admirable and noble and godly calling, and it is a calling. In 2014, uh, Forbes.com listed the nine hardest leadership jobs in America, and would you believe that stay-at-home parent is the toughest leadership role that there is, according to Forbes? My wife is like, you didn't need Forbes to say that. I could have told you that, and you could have brought me flowers and said thank you for that. And I do, and I will buy you flowers this week. Uh, fifth trait: They uh, younger women were to be gentle, considerate, gracious, and merciful. Sixth trait: They were to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, this phrase may be the most controversial in our culture. So, let me make some observations really quickly from the text. One, Paul wrote Titus that older women were to teach younger women to be submissive to their own husbands, not someone else's husband, and not all men. It is not Christian theology or doctrine that women are to be doormats to men in any way. Anybody who ever tells you that or uses the Bible for that fundamentally misunderstands what the scriptures are saying about God creating male and female together in his own image with creative dignity and worth. Second. Paul's statement here about submission of wives to husband should not be quoted by any Christian male ever without remembering the call in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 to mutual submission of wives to husbands and husbands to wives. The scriptural principle is that the husband submits to the wife and the wife defers to the husband. 3 Paul did not command women to obey their husbands. And the phrase, grammatically speaking, is in the middle voice, meaning that it is the wife's choice and not the husband's choice to call a wife to ever submit to her husband. If Natalie submits to my leadership, and she does, it is her choice, not me lording it over her. Christian husbands and wives should be part of churches, therefore, because an unsubmissive, controlling, abusive husband needs to be checked by godly elders and pastors. We had this at a church we were part of once, and the husband said, it's the wife's job to submit, and I said, I agree, and it's your job to submit to the spiritual authority that God has given me as your pastor, and the wife said, well, what if he starts bossing me around? I said, then I will deal with him. And he said, I'm 6'5". How are you going to do that? I said, I got a Louisville Slugger baseball bat in my room. And me and Louisville Slugger will have a talk with you until we figure it out. Because there's a chain of command, a pipeline of authority that God has given. And it doesn't stop with husbands in the church for Christians. Next thing, submission does not infer inferiority, but it it refers to deferring as there must be an order to things. God created male and female in his image with equal dignity and equal love, but not identical roles. Finally, wives, let me encourage you, let your husband lead. Follow his lead and pray for him to lead. My wife is an excellent model of this principle. She is not inferior, but she defers to my leadership of our family. With that said, we make our decisions together in our family with the weight of the ultimate responsibility of those decisions always falling on me, not her. And... To be the head of the house means, men, that we are not exerting authority like kings. What it means to be the head of a house is that if you were leaving the theater district and a robber walked out in front of you and your wife, you jump in front and you lay your life down for her, not the other way around. And in the same way, there is an enemy and a robber, and his name is the devil, Satan, and he would jump out and destroy your marriage and try to kill you and destroy your family. And in that moment, men, to be the head of the home and worthy of submission means that you jump in front of your wife and you defend her and your family before the devil, if, even if that means you lay down your life. You become fighting men who are worthy of being submitted to. When God made Adam, uh, when God made Eve from Adam, he took a rib. So a godly wife does not trail behind her husband or go out in front of her husband. A godly couple goes side by side with the man bearing the weight of spiritual authority and responsibility. Now, I know that those are countercultural views. So first of all, if you're not a Christian, let me say, you don't have to apply, you don't have to do any of that. That's how Christians live. And let me say, when culture comes against Scripture, we do careful study of Scripture to make sure we're understanding it correctly in light of all Scripture. And then culture always bows to Scripture. Always. But we have to get Scripture right, and we have to understand it. And that's why discipleship happens best together. Next one, younger men. Paul transitions to younger men, to newlyweds, young dads, young unmarried men, new believers even in our context here at Christ Church Charlestown. And Paul tells Titus to urge, but that word to urge, he says urge the younger men, is not like a boss yelling at employees. That word urge is the same word from the Holy Spirit. It's to say, Carson, I'm going to urge you, I'm going to come alongside you and help you along uh, as you follow God. Titus, like the Holy Spirit, was to come alongside the young men, and encourage them. Younger men were to be taught by Titus, even though Titus was probably qualified as a young man as well. And the young men are told to do one thing, and here it is. Be self-controlled. Young men, new to faith, not married yet, newlyweds, new dads, be self-controlled. Have your passions under control. Not be mastered by your passions. Remember, it is needed and attainable, young men, for you to be self-controlled. Um, I recently read a passage by a guy named Owen Strachan, who is at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which speaks of this. Uh, I want to read it to you, if I might. He says this. You want to change the world, young Christian? Awesome. I genuinely love that gospel ambition. God will use that. He really will. A few suggestions. If you're married, love your spouse. On this point, don't aim small. Aim at a seven-decade marriage. That's your goal. Not hookups. Not momentary pleasures, but steadfast covenantal love of which the world is not worthy. Whether single or married, pursue purity. Raise your kids with love and discipline. Build a vocation. Whether you love your job or not, work hard. Work really hard. Don't interrupt people. Cultivate good manners, they matter. Serve your church. If you want to be in ministry, go preach at the nursing home. Wait your turn. Be faithful. Uh in uh be faithful in the little things. Die to yourself, kill sin, make no excuses. Call your sins what they are, sins. You want to be a leader? Great. Yes. Now lead in repenting of sin. Say it with me. No excuses, no whining. Be a courageous witness. Seek out an older Christian. Listen to them. Don't talk. Just listen for a long time. Remember that every single second of your life is a gift from God whisper this to yourself every day faithfulness over success faithfulness over success faithfulness over success mourn with those who mourn rejoice with those who rejoice kill jealousy like an assassin recognize that the battle against sin begins in the heart it begins in the mind and the heart act as if you deserve nothing because you don't savor the grace of god in christ he is everything He is Alpha and Omega, faithfulness over success, repeat until dead. Man, that is what it means to be self-controlled as a young follower of Jesus. Then he addresses slaves in 9 and 10. I'm going to skip ahead and get to that. He names, uh, because we're not talking about 19th century slavery, uh, the, the, the closest parallel today would be an employee. So if you're an employee, just really quickly, he says, be submissive. Same principle as earlier with wives to husbands and husbands to wives in all of scripture. Be well-pleasing. The bosses of Christian men and women ought to be delighted to have them as their employees. Our performance and temperament ought to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. If you need me to explain this, you're probably the argumentative guy or woman, so you should repent of that. Uh, Not pilfering, not stealing product or time or anything else. Showing good faith, All of these traits show that our faith is not just sincere, but also worthy of the consideration of lost people far from Jesus. Um, We have a friend, Rachel, who has lived this out well. She had a non-Christian boss, and she was making about $30,000 a year. And she began to feel that God was calling her into ministry to go and serve the church. And so she went to her boss and said, I believe God's calling me to the ministry, but I'm not sure. I'm just wrestling through this, and I feel like my salary may be a sign that I... I'm not supposed to continue to be here. And she got like a $20,000 raise. Um, And then over the course of time, her boss continued to raise the money. Uh, This non-following, non-follower of Jesus began to raise this follower of Jesus uh, salary up and up and up because she saw how valuable and honest and hardworking she was as a follower of Christ, even though they didn't believe the same thing. By the end of it, when Rachel finally submitted to God's call to go into the ministry, the woman said, "I'm going to pay you 100,000 dollars a year for a job that was really worth about 40 or 50, because she saw the value that Rachel brought by her integrity and living out her faith in the workplace, and that's what God is calling employees to do and showing good faith. And lastly, he says, "Show yourself." Circling back, Paul urges Titus to preach the gospel and its application to himself. Titus couldn't find pastors and pastor people if he'd not first been led by God and changed by the gospel. As Titus called the church to maturity, he was called by Paul to mature himself and to do three things. One, model good works. Think cookie cutters. When I was a kid, we had cookie cutters at our house at Christmas. We had bells, angel cookies, bell cookies, and star cookies because we had bell, angel, and star cookie cutters. We never put in like an angel and got a baby Jesus out. We never put in a star and got a moon. What we made the cookie cutter of was what the cookie ended up being. And leaders in God's church ought to be models, patterns, templates, so that godly men and women are produced on the other side of it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Second thing, they were to sh- he was to show integrity and dignity and sound speech in teaching. I was terrible at math, but I remember integers and fractions. Integers were the whole numbers: one, two, one thousand, a million, a cajillion, whatever. Fractions: one third, two fourths, uh, five eighths. These are not whole numbers. Integers are whole numbers. That word integrity and where we get integers: same kind of root. We're to be whole not fractional in our faith. Paul's teach, or Titus's teaching was to be whole and sound and full of dignity and with no hypocrisy. And the third thing he said, live your life so that no one has anything evil to say of us. If you'll go to that third slide for me, and this is really important. Notice the phrase. He doesn't say live your life so that people don't have anything evil to say of you, Titus. He says, live your life so that non-Christians have nothing evil to say of us. Your life, your relationships, your work habits will make the gospel more beautiful or less credible for every one of us. How you are living your life will make the gospel more beautiful or less credible for all of us. It's late, so I'm just going to leave that one there. Uh, In conclusion, let me wrap this up. Here we go. A couple things. One, uh, fourth slide, if you will. God's intention is that his church is not be made up of a bunch of lone rangers coming weekly to hear the Bible or receive communion or do church. Rather, he created us for interdependence. Interdependence is part of our spiritual growth and maturing. Second thing, if you go to the next slide, every Christian would be wise to journey. This is a good formula. With an older believer, a younger believer, and peers in your faith. You need to find an older Christian, a younger Christian, and peers in your faith. That's what this passage is all about. Proverbs says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools comes to ruin. Uh, The other thing I think we take from this, disciples are best made, like Natalie learning to make my mom's recipes, from intentional teaching, giving the recipe, coaching, watching the recipe come together, and helping when necessary, cheerleading, and then celebrating. Uh, Examples of this, by the way. Our Viteagers, who started leading community group this week and did an incredible job, they're putting themselves out there learning this. This week, I'm going to say, Carson, I want you to tweak the recipe just a little. Do this one thing a little differently, and let's see if we get something that's even better (coughs) over time. And they will, and it's going to be incredible. They crushed it this week. So did Barb. Great start to groups this week. Uh, Scott and I had coffee yesterday, and he was just sharing some of the ways that he's growing in his faith. and It's incredible to hear what God is doing in his life, and the desires to learn the Word and to learn Scripture and know how to share Scripture. It's incredible to watch him grow uh, and to coach him forward. Uh, and then I thought about Kayla, and even this week with Kayla moving from here to South Carolina. Uh, And one of the things that she's doing was moving here without a job, praying, God, provide me a job. I was so convicted by that example this week. And God used her and her faith to convict me uh, to trust him more fiercely. Um, Disciples are best made from intentional process of helping one another grow. Your life relationships, work habits make the gospel more beautiful or less credible for all of us. Now, if you're a non-Christian, you're here today. This is going to have sounded odd and offensive, and I get it. Uh, Thank you for listening and not interrupting, like standing up and storming out. I'll be honest, it sounds odd and a little offensive to me as well. As I read it, I'm like, this is 2,000 years old. It sounds odd. But it does not sound nearly as odd as the idea that God became a human being and lived sinlessly and died sacrificially, and rose victoriously three days later from the grave. That sounds odd. And yet that, and not the order of relationships, is the thing that Christians have staked our lives and eternity on. So if you want to think any of this is madness today, find it mad that we would follow a Jewish carpenter who we believe died and rose again. And consider that claim, not how the church ought to operate. We are staking our lives in eternity, not on relationships with one another, but on our relationship with Jesus Christ who laid down his life for people like you and me when we didn't deserve it. And he didn't do it to model for us something or to coach you and I on how to be self-sacrificial or to cheer you on, but to purchase our salvation. That salvation doesn't just save us for eternity but empowers us today to follow him and live out his best. Let me pray for us.